At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I have this fantasy of thro- like getting rid of all my clothes and having two outfits. Yes. Like, like, like literally two shirts, two pairs of pants that, you know, I'm pretty close to that, by the way. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And I'm I'm a writer, writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Miriam Krolos. Miriam was born in Alexandra, Egypt. She has since lived in Los Angeles, New York, Seville, Seoul, Christchurch, and Riyadh. She received her PhD from the University of Denver. She previously lived in Jeddah, where she taught one of the very few creative writing classes in the kingdom. Miriam, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. We're so excited to have you here. We both absolutely loved reading Stan. It was a total uh, surprise in the best way. Uh, Loved it. Thank you so much. That's really kind. Awesome. Uh, Miriam, do you have something you would like to read for us today? Yeah, I was just going to take out a page of Stan. So having read it, you know how it's difficult to read out loud because of how it, um, as it progresses, it begins to become more and more disjointed and the only connection are the images that reoccur. Mm. So I tried to choose a page where things stay like very solid. Mm. It's, it's the page where she says she wants to be Liam O'Shea. Mm. Yes. Right now, now you ask me what else I want. Ask me what else I want. What do I want that is not you, you ask? I want to be a beautiful painter, Sam. I want to be a painter who paints fucking. No matter what she paints, it is really actually just fucking. She can paint a mountain and some trees, but she is only really capturing the essence of fucking. She herself doesn't fuck though. She's so beautiful that she doesn't need to, you see. She can afford not to be touched at all. She's that beautiful. She's brilliant and beautiful and she's a painter. She's a genius actually. She speaks many languages, really speaks these languages, not just says she does like some people do. 
I'm not just talking about conversational skills. She's fluent in dozens of languages. She's also sincere and kind and funny and incredibly generous. She is a strikingly beautiful painter who's hilarious, vibrant, brave, strong-willed. She's also a martial arts expert. She's never even really had to learn martial arts. She just has a way with these things. She beats men up all the time and they try to touch her because she's so beautiful. And she is good with children. She's really good with children. Interacting with her changes, their young lives, in fact. She does not try to tell them the meaning of life as she sees it. She explains to them all the different possible meanings of life so they can choose for themselves. She doesn't want to have any children herself though. Her name is Liam O'Shea. It is pronounced like the Irish man's name is pronounced, even though she is not Irish or a man. She is a native of someplace very exotic. No matter where you live on this planet, this place she is from is exotic, or perhaps she is a mixture of ethnicities that are all very exotic. Liam doesn't need to fuck, even though any man in his right mind would want to fuck her. Liam doesn't really care if she gets touched. This makes her challenging. It makes men want to touch her. She would be amazing in bed, of course, if she ever did fuck. She's very passionate, intense, charismatic, riveting. And what makes her cry so easily all the time is not just about kissing or touching or anything like that. She's just very sensitive because she is an artist. She is in tune with everybody else's emotions as well as her own. It is probably just being alive and not knowing the meaning of life that sometimes makes her so upset. Not knowing if she is a good person, though she is, she is the best person on earth. She's not as devoted to the poor as a nun would be or anything like that, but she is much better looking than any nun and she beats men up who try to touch her at bars. Maybe she doesn't know what she is either, but she is not weak enough to do bad things just so she finds out what she is. She just isn't sure if she is a good person, that's all. She isn't sure how to be a good person, that's all. She isn't sure how or if it even matters at all. She is not sure if there is a heaven. She wonders if there is no heaven, then why do I do all this painting now? Only to become nothing in the end. Why bother painting wheat fields that are really just fucking? If we are all only meat, if the fact that we rape each other all the time and put people on trains proves that we are meat now, if we become only our meat in the end anyway, if death turns us into meat and we all die, are we meat that gets upset? She wonders if fucking only makes us more like our meat than is it worth painting? It makes us happy to be our meat. It makes us want to be our body, which is only meat. We are meat that squeals, meat that rapes and squirms. Meat that wants to keep its babies from being raped, then rots. That is why we must forgive our sisters for not bearing our crosses. 
We must forgive our brothers for forsaking us, for not accepting their positions as our keepers. We must learn to forgive all the people who have let us suffer through, though they, they too know what it is to have a father and they know what fathers can do to you. These are just some of the conclusions about living life that Liam has come to so far. Liam keeps living though, and she stays so beautiful. She's probably the most beautiful woman on the earth. She is definitely the most beautiful woman on the earth right now. She has black hair and brown eyes, which would ordinarily be the most common, the least special, but not on her. Her skin is similar to the color of a Long Island iced tea, which is true of most people in the world, but is still so special a shade on her. On Liam, all shades of black, yellow, brown are spectacular. Her lips feel like they are made of many curled petals. Her mouth is a pink rose that opens and closes at will. Next to Liam's mouth, my mouth looks like it is made of skin and teeth. She can't be described. You just have to see her for yourself. She is all I want other than you. And that's it. Wow. Oh my goodness you are such a great reader yes really. it, it, took, it took a long time to find like the least number of fucks dicks cocks cunts like, <laughs> and this was it I was like I'm not in the mood like for a lot of the stand vocabulary today <laughs> <laughs> that was actually as clean as I could I could make it. it well our, our our audience is gonna love it. So yes. Miriam, I was so interested to hear um you describe at least later on the book as disjointed because as I was reading that never would have occurred to me, although as you said it, I thought, yeah, I guess so. You know, it definitely moves differently at the end than early on. But the solidity of the piece that you just read is absolutely carried through out the entire novel and the prose. I the whole the prose throughout is absolutely that solid. And so although disjointed may be an accurate description of what you're actually seeing on the page, it definitely doesn't read that way. Um, so maybe you're just like a really perceptive reader. But I think for some readers, it would feel like, because there's no plot, quote unquote, there's mm. no, it would feel like the more they get into it, the more like they can't. But if you are a reader who is like really trying to take language in, it was on my end completely solidified through image. Like, yes like 3,000 hours so mm, I wow. to thread um, the vocabulary so that the, the unifying factor is the repetition of images, how they come back in different ways. Mm. But I think like maybe like you did read it that way just because like you are like a better reader than most maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess I was, uh, I was so curious about Early, early in the book, there's the, the chapters tend to be a little bit longer, long, unbroken. Uh, I'm sorry, I said chapters, long, unbroken paragraphs. Um, and the effect is so uh, 
total of just sinking you into the voice of this narrator and teaching you how to read this book and really making the reader aware of the obsession, the nature of this narrator's perception, the nature of this narrator's desire. And I feel like you're set up so effectively by those long unbroken paragraphs early on. Um, I was really curious, Miriam, if the structure was always that way, if you always had sunk the reader in, in that fashion, or if you initially tried a different way to get the reader into the book. So the way it started was as like a tiny monologue. Mm. It was an exercise for a workshop class. And the exercise was to do like a dramatic piece. And I did a voice, the voice of, of a woman speaking about herself. It was, it, none of that language is, is here now. But in the dedication, the short dedication, I thank Sidney Goldfarb because he was the teacher for that workshop and he read that monologue and he's the reason that I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll keep doing it. So as I added to it, I was going through my own stuff while writing because I wrote Stan going to be now like 15 years ago. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So I was going through my own, it, it began to coincide. It didn't happen before, but as I was writing it, I was going through my own emotional, I don't want to say complete breakdown, but so like the, the way the language was structured then became very much about what I wanted to write that day because mm. there was the synchronicity you know, of mm. what I was like going through. So the form itself probably did come out of that exercise, the idea of just having one female voice speak. And then Sydney was like really, really, um, it was really encouraging about like making the voice you know, live on for a little while. The beginning maybe was more about what I needed, the, the vignettes, those longer vignettes, what you were referring mm, to. Mm -hmm. Towards the end, um, the structure does become way more about how a writer should write a book and less about what I needed because uh, I just, I'd calmed down a bit. So that's probably why, basically, like why at first there is like no break and then mm. it does become more writerly with mm. like these fragments and the things I want to tell Stan and um, the way it kind of like just uh, dies off with that scene with her and Stan and then that probably was me as a writer when the mm. beginning it was more me as like a human being mm. like who was like in need of writing it was catharsis for you yeah definitely definitely I mean I like I said I wrote it 15 years ago but I remember like sobbing mm. while typing the wow because I got to work on Stan for so long because I tried to get it published 
15 years ago and no one would have it. I, I gave it like to everybody on the planet and Meekling or they, they were the only people who wanted it 15 years later. They weren't around 15 years ago, but yeah, 15 right. years ago, it was Meekling. So what was, so 15 years ago when you initially were, were trying to get Stan published, what, what was, what was the process? Were you working with an agent sending it out and then just getting, they were just saying, eh, no. Or, I mean, I feel like I can't imagine someone reading this and not having a strong response. I just, I don't know. It's so gripping immediately. Yeah. The strong response book can be super, super negative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are. So I workshops, I was never ashamed of it. Like sometimes I do like today get in the mood where I don't want to say cock that often. Like I don't want to say cock out loud that often. But like I was never ashamed of of having like created it. So I did um, give parts to people in workshop and the reaction was not like yours. <laughs> it was not like, I mean, they were graduate students. So you can't really say they were just like not readers. They were mm. graduate students in a workshop, but no, it wasn't. It wasn't like this positive reaction I mean like one of the situations that happened one of the times I I I think I tried maybe twice to workshop it for various classes I'm not positive at this point honestly it was 15 years ago but one of the times I I was like publicly sexually harassed in class oh my, oh my god goodness. yeah like, like <sighs> publicly like in a graduate classroom like oh my god made about my body and my <sighs> yeah so like I don't I don't feel that this is like <laughs> just like a thing for everybody but I appreciate I appreciate you saying it a lot how did you maintain your connection to it over the years so um I had written like several manuscripts, none of them had gotten published. Now a few have, but um, none of them had for so long. But Stan was the only manuscript where when I was in a certain place, I needed to like read it again, like mm. for me, just to like, I don't know, the way people look at a picture. Mm -hmm. It was like, like cry or something like that. So it was like a lot of years. It was probably, I, it's 15 years since I wrote it, but it was probably 12 since, um, since somebody like actually said they wanted, but I would just, I had just a, like accepted that I wasn't ever gonna be published as a writer, but every once in a while it was the only one i, I was um reading it every once in a while and i didn't read any of my other manuscripts mm. like that are you the kind of uh writer Miriam, that just continually is working on new things uh, so did you have many manuscripts sitting i mean do you have lots of stuff that you've been working on over the years or is it other projects that you've worked is it less projects that you've worked on for a long time as well 
I became, uh, I got into writing. I was going to say became a writer, but I just got into it. But when I was really way older than most people, I wasn't even really literate because mm. of the move from Egypt to the States and all these other little things that happened. I just didn't grow up with a book in the house. There were hardly like, it was just not an environment where um, somebody could decide to be a writer. Like my high school, I could go on and describe, but just imagine a high school where like not one single person could say that out, <laughs> like no one would ever say. So um, it was when I was really uh, like an adult adult that I ended up applying to an MFA program just because I had been, I had been doing certain things like getting tattoos <laughs> want to write something down you know mm -hmm. so I thought okay I'll do this MFA program and so when I got in I was I was a good writer like I like good at like being productive like I said like I had poetry I wrote stand by the end of a year I wrote another I started another book I but then when I couldn't, when it just was becoming obvious, like I can't get published, I'd applied everywhere. Like, I don't know if you guys remember the CLMP books because we didn't mm -hmm. have internet. <laughs> I went through like every single publisher and sent them everything I could. It was like thousands of dollars. I just couldn't get published. So I gave up and then I didn't write for years, for several years, I did not write a word. Mm -hmm. So all the things that are um, published now are actually written very long ago. But now I've been back from Saudi Arabia for three years now. And now I am trying to finish up a manuscript that's about um, being back from Saudi Arabia. So now I am writing again, but I think when, there's something about writing, at least for me, when I felt like I had no audience, I just, like I was willing to go back to my tattoos or something, you know? Huh. I was yeah. to like make it more personal again and not allow it to be about real communication with other people. I just couldn't write. I didn't write a word for like close to seven years. Did it feel like you were being deprived or depriving yourself of something or did it feel nourishing in a different way? Oh, no. It was hell. <laughs> it was like every time somebody said the word dream, I dropped oh. to the ground. Oh. Was like, like, no, it was horrible for me. I really, if I hadn't written Stan and I hadn't felt this momentum I probably would have been fine as a younger person to have gotten like a decent paying job and done something else. But because I had at that point written Stan and written Big City and felt these things, like felt this kind of power, you, you know, like the power of like doing something for yourself that is what you want to actually do for yourself and, and saying that that's what you are. Once I got 
to feeling what that would be like and thinking that, yeah, I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to like get into academia and publish books and whatever. It just did not work out. I just know it wasn't easy for me. I was, I was devastated. How did you end up finding Meekling then? What is the, how, after all that time, what was the thing that either caused you to reach out to someone in Meekling or did you cross paths with someone at the press in a different way and, and they asked if you had anything or what was that process like? I didn't even remember. <laughs> sending it to me going <laughs> when they when they sent me uh an email I didn't even think it was like real publishing <laughs> like I knew that they'd done some art books I thought maybe they wanted to use some of the language to do like some images for something I still was like yes but I had I had no memory of giving it to them I think what would happen is that you know like I said I I just was crushed I was crushed for Mm -hmm. for years but every once in a while I would send it out somewhere it'd be like every once a year once every two years or three years I would be like okay let me just you know like and that's probably what happened it was one of my bi-yearly or yearly or like you know like how it was not often at all I'd go years and just forget about it but I must have like in a daze at night just been like okay let me let me do this and I must have just like emailed it to them and not remembered that I'd done it at all that's amazing I think a lot of us can relate and sometimes looking through submittable it's like oh (laughs) oh I sent that there (laughs) well fingers crossed (laughs) yeah or I've sent that everywhere yeah (laughs) (laughs) what are the things that you like to read so honestly this is so shameful (laughs) this is so shameful so like I said, when I was young, there were just like no books in my life. It just wasn't that kind of environment, not, not in school and definitely not in my, in my home. But when I got into the grad program, I did, of course, I did develop like a sense of who I was as a reader. And like I, I like to read all kinds of things and I could have been uh, able to more discuss like myself as a reader once I got into my depression funk what 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 we will call it I don't know about not being able to write reading became very emotionally painful for me I couldn't read a book without um, thinking about how I'm not gonna write any like I'm not gonna get to write a book Mm. and so it's been so long I I've read things I mean you know like I've read things in the last in the last several several years I've read things but not like a human being who Mm. writes books should should have read things in the last Mm. several years what what does that mean I mean like I taught classes. Mm. So, so it's I not read, for pleasure. Yeah. Like I definitely curate reading lists for my classes. I think about what 
who to find for my students. And it's not all people I've read. So I have to like find new writers, people I haven't read. But when you talk to somebody who's written books about what they read, usually they have more to say to you than I read when I need to curate a reading list for my <laughs> It is the first time we've got this answer. I just really did get like very um, psychologically painful. Mm-hmm. When I would pick up a book, all I could think for years was like I'm not a writer anymore like I just couldn't um I couldn't do it but now now I am I am becoming like more more myself it's not it's not fully there yet I don't know if you can relate to this experience but you know when something happens to you after so so long it takes you like another 12 years to realize hmm. that has happened. <laughs> like, yes, absolutely. So it just took so long for me to say like, oh, I wrote something and I got published that I am still, for some reason, even though I know it's how I am still kind of in that headspace where I'm not a writer. The confidence in this voice and yes. you know, this, this voice that is so sure of itself not 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 that not that the character is sure of herself but that the voice is is asserting itself um in control yeah yeah yeah. and that is such a pleasure because it's a book that like Alex was saying has its own rules and so you have to really trust you know that there's a direction that you're going as the reader and and you have done that you know and I and it just seems like it's such a visceral you know it was such a visceral thing for you, literally, you know, you were, you were working through emotions as you wrote it, but it, it's, it's visceral for the reader as well. Yeah, thank you. That really, it says so much more about you guys as readers. (laughs) But, But yeah, like, yes, that is how I felt about it as a writer, that when you take away everything from fiction, when you say, I'm not going to give you setting, I'm not going to give you a plot, I'm not even going to give you a real character, I'm not going to give you anything except language, then yeah, you better have something that language does that it hasn't done for them before. Like, there has to be something that TV cannot do, that a movie cannot do, that story in any other shape or form, drama or poetry, there has to be something it can't do in a story where there's no story or plot or characters or setting. You have to like do something with story that only language. This is a plot-free safe space. <laughs> For sure. Oh my goodness. We, we prize language, you know, so much. Um, so yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe it is the type of readers that we are, but we are also pretty impatient. So (laughs) absolutely. I mean, we got little kids running around. Come on. (laughs) I I did think about that too. Like how, you know, the golden rule, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, how Mm. I read. And I don't 
like one, like I just said, I don't want a story that can be given to me in any other easier form than reading, because I might as well do that. Like if it's, if all I'm gonna get out of a story from a book is the same thing I get out of Netflix, well, I might as well keep Netflix on and make dinner at the same time or something. Mm -hmm. So like when I write, whatever I write, I try to think about that, like how to do something with language that just can't be done and to make story in any other genre. And the other thing is time and patience, like how to not self-indulge as a writer and just know that there's an attention span for the reader and they begin and they end. And if you don't pace yourself in this way where you're keeping somebody's attention, especially now that, you know, all you're giving them is language, that it is, you know, it's your fault as a writer if they don't finish the book. But again, you guys are just like really amazing readers because uh, the way you're picking up on things that I did as a writer, hardly anybody, hardly anybody like is usually like observant like that. We are your audience. We are. <laughs> we are definitely your audience. Yes. <laughs> We've been here all along waiting for you. <laughs> Miriam, the I was trying to think as I was reading, you know, what what does this remind me of? Are there other writers that have a similar intensity and control and kind of walking that line um also just the kind of deep personal accounting that this narrator does in a way that feels from life and grounded um in the best way you feel a part of the accounting in a way that i loved as a reader the only person i really thought of that i was writing now was dura i was wondering are you a fan of of marguerite dura do you know what i more than once have been asked to read dura whoa and and i now i I have read her, but I've not read her. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I've not really, I'm sure, you know, six years of grad school at schools like DU, like, there's no way that the reason I know the name isn't because there's a book or, you know, that's come my way. But no, I haven't really, like, actually sat with it. And mm. I should because... Um, more than once somebody has said that to me. That I oh should. man, yeah. I think you would, I think you would potentially be a, a, a fan, definitely. Well, maybe buy, buy some stuff like when, when we're done, maybe. I'll yeah. The Lover is kind of the one everybody talks about. And I, I do think it's a good place to start um, for sure. Although, I've never read her either. Oh, really? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think you would dig her, Lindsay, for sure. Dura Reading Club right here. There you go. Editing this book after so long, after, although you said you were returning to it and it was definitely a, a touchstone for you in your life almost that you kind of came back to. And then what did it feel like to actually 
when you knew this was going to be published and you're sitting and you're kind of doing final edits, what, what, were, what was that process like? Did you do a lot of edits before publication or was the book in, in the shape that you had wanted it because it had been with you for so long? And what was it like letting someone in to that? Yes. Yeah. So with Stan, it was, it was really easy to say I'm done because like I said, it was the only manuscript after grad school that I had read again just for myself just to like feel something about like myself so um it was done and at Meekling they edited like there was one line that they didn't think should be there maybe a couple but that's all they wanted from me like I that um you know I had nothing left it was you know like done and then I'd read it every few years and they wanted a couple lines and one line I don't remember I think one of them but one line I am really glad they got rid of it you Mm. know I didn't have the sense to but it was last minute they sent me an email saying this has too many fucks and cocks in it <laughs> i wish <laughs> i wish they lightened you know I wish they just this one sentence was too far <laughs> it was really necessary to take it out now i see but it was in the uh things i want to tell stan mm-hmm. and it was in the vignette about why women let men things do things to them that, mm-hmm. that longer vignette about like well sometimes you do it because and sometimes you do it because and the the opening of that vignette now i am so glad that they got rid of that line wow when they asked for it to go I was like, sure, whatever you guys want. <laughs> I'll do anything. <laughs> it was 12 years and no one except them wanted this book. I was like, you want some other lines? <laughs> Any other lines? Uh, so I agreed because I was like, whatever you people say, whatever. But then <laughs> like now when I think about it, I'm like, oh my God, thank God they got it. Like, mm. thank thank god they caught that line but yeah they got rid of it so that was the editing process the other manuscripts when they got when they got published i did really wish i'd changed like a lot and i didn't because also the publishers just didn't require it or ask for it just they just let the text be exactly big city they let it be exactly what it is word for word oh wow and i wished i wish that i had like changed everything with big city but with stan it wasn't like that Mm. do you have first readers that you show any of your stuff to when we were in grad school of course we had workshops after grad school I was kind of like all over the place just trying to find some way to make money Mm -hmm. I ended up 
I was like a waitress for a month. And then I worked for my brother doing his flyers. And it was horrible. horrible. <laughs> I didn't have like anywhere to live except this like, oh, I'm not even going to describe it. And then I went to Saudi Arabia. The answer is absolutely no readers at all. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you can't even like have a book. But when I was first going to Saudi, you weren't even supposed to put books in your suitcase, much less like walk oh, around wow. having people read manuscripts. But yeah, no, I, after... The only time in my life I had a reader was when we were doing workshops. Hmm. That's wild. Even now? Yeah. Oh I have God. a very solitary existence. <laughs> I've mostly lived alone, like, the majority of my life. So there, there hasn't really been, like, anyone in the house or in the apartment to... And no, I don't really, I had friends that were, like I said, when we were doing workshops, like I had mm -hmm. friends that, that would get to read the work, but no, not anybody that I could send to. But like, like I said before, I also wasn't writing anything. Right. Mm -hmm. So now I came back from Saudi in 2018 and I started I was just like, it was just the worst. <laughs> Saudi Arabia was the worst. I got deported. That was the worst. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, everything was the worst. I had nowhere to go. So that compelled me to uh, write something. And I've been working on it, like adding to it, because then there was the shutdown. That was the worst. Everything's just like been it's been it's been a big old batch of bad years. Yeah. yeah. So I kept adding to it. It's not like nonfiction, really, but it, the voice really is concerned with like events, like actual events of like living in Detroit and the building that I'm in and the men and it's called River House the men mm -hmm. it's called Fish Flies the men of the River House the River House is where I live so yeah so that's that's been happening hopefully that happens but, why were you deported so none of your business Alex <laughs> <laughs> the thing you have to realize about Saudi Arabia is the deportations don't need to be like official so mm. a citizen can say to you like you have to get out and you what yeah because if if you don't there there are going to be repercussions and you can't you know you can't like you know fight them off so I had an coma for five years. Like I had basically what is like a, a green card. So I technically, according to Saudi law, could have stayed after my school got rid of me. But what happened is one of my students' fathers was a general. And the school itself had been having issues with me just because I was like trying to do the most I can to teach without like books where everything was illegal and I did I did really I was really 
like I, I wasn't, I don't think I was going too far, but it was complete freedom compared to what these girls were used to. Like mm. we're writing about basically like being with other women and, you know, like just they were writing about whatever they wanted and they were doing like really beautiful work actually. And so I maybe was like uh, going a bit too far with the things that I was saying and doing, but what this girl who complained about me, she didn't really care about that. She just cared because I failed her. I failed her because she wasn't going to class at all. Mm. So she reported me, not even because she was like genuinely politically minded or anything like that, because she was just angry, her and a few of the other girls that failed because they met, they didn't come to class and didn't do the work. Or, um, they went and told their parents about this other stuff because they, um, they just... It's just very hard to explain Saudi Arabia, but there's an extremely tribal mentality. Mm. Once like a group starts thinking that you're something, you can't logic your way out of it anywhere. Because mm. like, it's, it's just a very difficult culture to explain. But anyway, so I got deported, not by the Saudi government, but, but by people basically like, the Saudi people said, you're leaving. And I said, I don't have to, I have this account. And they just like laughed in my face. And once like they just look at you a certain way, once they do that, you know, they're right. Like, you know, that if they want you out, they could just say anything to the police and have you taken out of your like apartment or whatever. So, and her father was a general so I wasn't officially deported like like in the courtroom or anything like that I was just told to to leave immediately wasn't allowed to um keep my apartment or or stay until I found somewhere to be in the states and I know it sounds weird it sounds like how could but I'd already I'd been in Saudi Arabia for years and I'd seen people deported for walking next to each other Mm, wow I'd had, had like more than one story that wasn't me about deportations that just happened like citizen deportations where where somebody just decides that they don't want you there and they're gonna you know threaten you and you do you just do have to leave you know you can't really mess around but I know it's so hard to to understand how somebody tells you, like you're in Mexico and a Mexican person says, get out and you just go <laughs> to the airport. Like <laughs> it seems like really impossible, but you do kind of have to do it like that. <laughs> that is wild. God. What brought you to Detroit? Oh, when I was in Saudi, it was like, it was just, I really loved some of my girls at first, my girls at first were just like hardcore, 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 like just that tribal mentality. It was hardcore. They were in Al Harg. They were in a city where 
they seriously, some of them had not met another man other than their father and their brothers, like their whole lives. Like they'd never, they were completely head to toe, hands covered. So that environment was really intense and they were really hard to teach because they were socially, and I know this isn't politically correct to say, but socially they were acting like children because they'd been deprived of anything, any experience that could make you not a child. Mm. But they were 20. They were oh like, my goodness. Wow. Um, so like, that was really hard for me. Jeddah was easier. That's where I was. That was the third school I was at. And um, there's a point to this, but Jeddah was easier because Jeddah is considered liberal for Saudi. It's not at all, but it's just like where like men and women can be in the same building, Mm. you know, like you can have like joint, you you have to stay covered, but like you can have like, um, like a joint sharing of buildings in Jeddah. So Saudi for some of these reasons, other than the girls, like my girls in Jeddah, I, I started to really love some of that. And it was just such a dystopian misery for me that I needed, like, I just needed some, um, some type of like, oh, I'm doing it for this reason. I'm, I'm doing it for this. And so in my head, it was always like, I'm doing it because I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to buy a house. Mm. And so the only place I could buy anything when I came back was Detroit. (laughs) The prices had, the the prices, gentrification had like started to, to work on the cost of living and property prices. But yeah, I... I had become obsessed. I don't even really want to own it, but I think in Saudi, it was just seriously, with my personality, it was very difficult. There were other people who worked in Saudi who um, were very unhappy, but they, they weren't as aware of what was happening around them. They just were focused on like, more um like oh yeah yeah you know now we eat and drink and now we you know like have a party at the compound or whatever and I was really really distraught by a lot of what was going on and this idea like well I'm gonna survive this I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep doing this job I'm gonna keep doing it because I'm gonna buy a house I'm gonna buy a house and so yeah, and now I have to sell the house. <laughs> it was just like it was just like a faulty plan. But that was that's it's a very long story, but that's why I'm in Detroit because it was just this obsession and I don't even want like I I don't even want a house. <laughs> 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 it's like was like I'm doing it. I'm gonna survive this. I'm gonna survive it because I'm gonna buy a house. And you're selling, now you're selling the house. Yeah, I couldn't even afford a house. I'm in a tiny, tiny, tiny little 500 square foot apartment, but I did buy it. And now I have to sell it to leave. But I am, I am happy to, 
to be going because I've been, it's been really hard from Saudi to Detroit. Yeah. God, yeah. Are you going to Wake Forest now? Yeah. Okay. Like I could keep this apartment in Detroit, but some part of me is like, no, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care where in a forest in North Carolina. I just don't want to be back here again. Not because it, it, the city itself did anything to me. It's just like I've become sensory uh, sensitivity to mm. anything to do with Detroit because of what I was feeling when I, when I got here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Miriam, uh, we could obviously talk to you about this for much longer hours more. I am absolutely riveted. <laughs> I am such a fan of your work. I'm so glad to now be able to anticipate your next book. And thank you so much for coming on tonight. I'm so glad that Miriam came on because a lot of people, if anybody picks up that book after listening to this episode and they have a, you know, they have a sense of what it is after our conversation I know a lot more people are going to love this book. It's just, it deserves a wider audience. And I'm so glad uh, it came into our lap. I, it shocked me that she was saying she couldn't find. Shocked. Publishers or anyone that wanted to publish her stuff. And it, and it just makes me think how much better um, the journals have gotten, you know, like, and how much like more accepting and like how much more, need and want there is for writing like this you know yes completely unique and new absolutely and Miriam was you know being self-deprecating or just even giving herself a hard time about like some of the language but it's really not I mean as you're reading the experience of reading Stan is not although it is a sexually explicit book in some ways it's not it's not in a way that doesn't feel appropriate for the content of the narrative. It feels exactly Absolutely. right. It feels exactly right. And it's not egregious by any means. Anyone. Yeah, It's, it's not yeah. there to be like, look how shocking I am. Exactly. How edgy mm, I am. No, I really feel like she just hasn't found her people yet. And they're out there. Yes, they are definitely out there. Um, I'm thinking like Elle Nash and her. Oh my God. I almost sent it to Elle. I literally yes. thought I need to send this to Elle because I think she will love this. Yeah. It's just, there's, there's such an intensity to it. And, if you are a fan of Marguerite Dura, I think this book is for you. I do. Um, I hope more people read it because this is a really special book. Yeah. And it's, it's a novella. So, you know, Quick. get in, get out. Mm-hmm. And it, it begs you to stay with it. I mean, it, yes. like it is hypnotic and just as her speaking is hypnotic. Like I felt like I was slowly lowering myself down into like, a bed of petals or something as she was speaking yes. the whole time it was wonderful but that's also kind of like the hypnotic um feel you get as you're reading stan it's true i'm curious to read big city oh my god i'm definitely gonna pick it up yeah um for sure and i can't wait until the next one is published i have no idea what to expect in the best way yeah yeah i hope she just keeps going i was gonna I tell you um, you know, I'm chugging along on my new thing and, yes. um, you know, and I, I deleted a bunch of stuff and started over basically in this 8K. starting over. Yeah. 8k bro. Um, 
And I had this thought the other day that it was like, oh, I can actually just delete line by line until there's nothing left. Oh my God. Fuck you, by the way. (laughs) It just, in the moment, it made so much sense to me. I was like, oh, that's what writing is. Writing is actually just deleting. And then how, who's to say I haven't written a book if I wrote the whole thing and then deleted it. Exactly. It's still a book. (laughs) It's all semantics, whatever. That's right. I did go to an art school for my grad degree, so I could totally see like presenting that as my final thesis, just air. <laughs> oh my God. My, uh, my best friend went to SASC for painting and he would tell me some of the stories about some of the, I don't know what they're called, workshop presentation when mm-hmm. it's painting, whatever, some of the stuff that was brought in. And he was, he was a pretty like straight up figurative painter and <laughs> Uh, some of the stories I could not wrap my head around. They were just too beautiful to be real. They were this, just... this one woman, you're only supposed to, they only, they want you to get your writing degree in two years. This is, I don't yeah. know if this is still true, but it was true when I was there, but they'll give you three. So this woman had been there for seven years and <sighs> she had taken every class. She was just impossible. Her finally, finally, they forced her to graduate. Her And you're supposed to go up there and read because everyone's supposed to write this thesis, you know, that you work on with your advisors and, you know, it has to be a certain length. It has to be whatever indicative of what you've done the whole time you were there. And she got up there and peeled oranges and shoved them in her mouth till she was choking and said that was her final thesis (laughs) after seven years. And that school ain't free. Okay. It's a private institution. (laughs) That is so fucking good. She was like, (laughs) and then she died. And I've never heard of her again. So I don't know what, what she's up to. God, I can't wait for the Apple book. (laughs) Yeah. That was the citrus book. Citrus. Jesus. Yeah. His stories were like that. Lots of wire hangers on like the night before and you're, whatever beautiful (laughs) so good ben went to one of the readings or maybe he remembers me talking about it and he claims someone did the worm oh wow up to the stage were you there or is that something oh yeah oh wait no i'm sorry it wasn't doing the worm he slithered like a snake up to the stage (laughs) i don't remember that second second episode in a row with snakes so i fucking hate it Uh, (laughs) he just said it was colson whitehead (laughs) it was not okay do not slander that poor man's name it was richard ford (laughs) it was raymond carver you know what it was raymond carver that's right a A thick snake much to drink oh my god yeah so that's it that's all i got i'm gonna go eat dinner everybody Uh, uh find that book miriam krolos and order it and then let's all talk about it yes good night good night i'm a writer but is recorded by alex hickley and me Lindsay hunter in our respective basements editing by Lindsay hunter music by max loop yeah yeah